This is the Media Week Industry Podcast from the people at mediaweek.com.au. Welcome to a new Media Week podcast. We're back at Twitter headquarters in Australia. It's uh, sort of an an irregular series we've been doing with different executives. Joining us today is Jenny Sager. Welcome, Jenny. Now, you're the Director of Entertainment for Twitter Australia. That's right. That's right. I actually oversee the team through Asia Pacific, so not just Australia. Right. Okay, wonderful. So how long have you been in the role? I've been at Twitter for about three and a half years now. Uh huh. Always looking after the entertainment. Sort yes. Of? Okay. Yep. Always in entertainment. Yeah. Now, so tell me, how wide is the entertainment? What what falls under that umbrella? Yeah, I like to say that it's pretty much anything that's not sports or politics. <laughs> so <laughs> it is a pretty wide umbrella. It can be fashion. It can be music. It can mean working with television networks and film companies and radio networks, um, and then of course around key events as well. So it really is a huge umbrella. Sure. Yeah. The um, we've recently uh, been reporting on a, a lot of content deals Twitter's been doing. Um, um, they announced, I think, earlier this year. Updated them quite recently. Uh, how much have you been involved in all of that? Yes, it's a huge part of our roles day to day. Essentially, my team through Asia Pacific. That's exactly what we do. So we work with partners to drive high quality content campaigns on the platform, and um, that is working with them to grow both their reach and their revenue. So. That's essentially our main job is getting that content on the platform. Okay. And is some of that stuff live? You're involved with live live things? Yes. Yep, exactly. So it's, again, my team who's responsible for getting those live deals and that live content onto the platform. Yeah, okay. What are some of the recent... Um live events you've been covering? Yeah, we've got, we had some really exciting announcements um, lately coming up in the next month for Twitter here in Australia. So we've got a global exclusive of the Aria's red carpet show. So previously that aired on broadcast television and this year for the first time ever, it will be airing globally and exclusively on Twitter, which means it is literally the only place in the world that music fans will be able to watch that content. So really excited about that. Um, We also will be live streaming the Melbourne Cup again this year globally and we are um, increasing the hours around this the spring racing carnival that we'll be live streaming so in addition to Melbourne Cup we'll be live streaming about four uh, additional hours of the races everything from Derby Day to Stakes Day as well um, and we've been live streaming we did a Shepherd concert um, August 29th so about a little over a month ago we did the Aria's nominations event um, October 10th so a couple of weeks ago and that's a great example because we had more than 30,000 views in the first hour from our live stream and Facebook had about 1.1 thousand so we're just we're really smashing it out of the park in the live streaming space we're really really excited about it yeah and as I guess entertainment is one of the areas that's remained um, quite strong for users I mean a, a lot of people in the entertainment industry a lot of entertainment fans use Twitter as a if not a primary but one of their key key um, go-to spaces to find out what's happening? Absolutely. I mean, I think people tend to, on surface a lot of times, think that sports is driving the most conversation and the most eyeballs on the platform, but it's actually entertainment and politics. Um, So you're exactly right. I mean, entertainment is a huge reason why people come to Twitter. I think part of that is because of the authenticity And one thing we hear a lot um, in regards to why they come to Twitter versus our competing platforms is because they know it is an authentic voice. So in other words, if they're tweeting with, say, a Katy Perry, they know it's actually her and not her management team. And it's less of a 
promotional tool in the eyes of the fans and more of an interactive tool and a way to connect with those people. So, yeah, you're, you're totally right. It's a huge reason why people come to the platform every day. Um, the When you do things like the uh, the ARIA's red carpet, do you, do you have to... Or, or other events, do you have to sort of mount the coverage yourself or can you leverage existing sort of broadcast deals they have with, with people covering the event? Yep, we can leverage existing deals. It's really a case-by-case basis. So some live streams we do um, will be with major broadcasters and major publishing partners. So they will already have that capability. So, for example, we are, we're live streaming actually the day after the Arias, um, the Mama Awards, which are huge K-pop awards, and we're live streaming that globally as well. So that being... Where are they being held? They're being yep. held in Japan and also Hong Kong, so okay. two days. Um, and so that being a major broadcaster, we're just basically tapping into their back end and providing a live streaming platform and capability off of that. We do have to provide, obviously, our back end and, and some technical um, things from the, the back as well. But then in other instances, we might think that the content is really great where we become an attractive platform because it's not content that's being aired on broadcast television. So a traditional broadcaster might not deem it big enough to actually put on TV, but the audience on Twitter Hmm. we think is huge enough and engaged enough that it merits it. So something like that would be um, NRL Juniors. We live streamed that earlier this year. uh, AFL Women's, we live streamed some of that in the U.S. We're live streaming, for example, some lacrosse tournaments, which would never air on broadcast television, but again, we know there's a big audience for it on the platform okay okay i want to run through some of the uh, the different industries and 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 how you're working with them and maybe some get some uh, best case of sort of practice yeah. off you of, of who's doing really well but i want to go off topic a little bit right at the end and just ask you you've got done a few interesting things in your background before you joined twitter so we might cover a few things of them like some tv work you did um sure. you were involved in a super bowl too i'd like to hear a little bit about that and i think some of the listeners would too but um so what's the single biggest sort of sector you think you work with in in your field would it be do you cover television do you cover would it be music yeah we do cover both of those i think television networks in general are such an important partner for us i think the the correlation between twitter and tv that's why i came to work at twitter my whole background was in television and i saw the way that twitter specifically was changing the face of television and i i started to feel like tv was an aging medium and it needed twitter to keep involving we're seeing everything from shows being renewed just off of twitter conversation Things like Real Housewives of Melbourne, when that first started, the ratings were really not that good, but there was so much conversation on Twitter that that was a a reason why it got re-signed for another season. In the U.S., Scandal is a great example of that, which is now obviously a massive hit show, but season one wasn't doing that well, but the Twitter conversation was so enormous that that got that show renewed. So I think that's a really interesting space and just the way that Twitter has become a second screen. For example, last night, I'm a huge Walking Dead fan. I was catching up on the season premiere of The Walking Dead, and what's the first thing I did? You know, search the hashtag just to see everybody else's comments and all the funny memes that came out of it, and just it's like watching it with your friends around the world, you know? Um, so I think that it's just become such an important app for television, both consumption and production. Um, so te- TV networks are such a massively important partner for us. And in addition to that, 
TV networks in general globally are earning a lot of revenue off of their Twitter content. So it's not a one-way street where we're just kind of capitalizing off of their content. They're now earning a, a huge amount of revenue off of their content on Twitter. So yes, definitely important. Um, music. Music is one of the biggest conversation drivers on the platform. It's definitely in the top three reasons why people come to the to the platform. So I think on a consumption basis, um, just in, or, in an organic sense, it's so important for us to keep working with everyone from record labels to artist management to artists directly. If you look at the top 10 most followed people on Twitter globally and locally, the majority of those are music artists. So locally, for example, out of our top 10, eight of those are music artists. And it's almost, it's almost the same everywhere you go globally. So yes, it's just, it's hugely important. Yeah. You, you mentioned that TV making some revenue off their, their Twitter content. So, so it's a double win for them, right? Cause they are also use it as a marketing tool to promote their programs. Plus as a bit of a revenue generator as well. Exactly. Um, for, for, for I guess you've been in this role, what, over three years, did you have to do a bit of an edge? Because it's still quite young Twitter, isn't it, really? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, an, it's a young platform. Back then, did you have to still go through and sort of convince maybe some sceptics that look what it could do for them and, and show what it was doing elsewhere to really get them to sort of take it on? Yeah, absolutely. I think admittedly... Twitter can be one of the hardest platforms to understand in the beginning, but then once you get it, it actually can do the most for you. And so, yes, we still educate. We still have to educate some partners, especially because, to your point, through Australia, we have only been in the market for about four years. So it was operating a a bit like a startup when I first came on board, and we weren't even exploring things like content with revenue or anything like that at the time. It was literally just explaining simple best practices to partners, doing a lot of best practice workshops and kind of handpicking important events each year that we we knew we could go big with and really do a lot for the partner on. Um, And an example of that is something like the Arias, where each year our partnership with them has grown significantly because they've seen the results every year just grow significantly. So yeah, in the beginning, it was very much just about kind of basic processes and best practices and that kind of thing. Yeah. You mentioned all the music stars that um, that um, use the platform uh, to, f- to further their brand and I just guess in- engage with their with their audience. Um, do you have sort of best practice um, tips or anything that mm-hmm. you can give out to people who, who might reach out to you or, or working with their management or their labels that's to, to encourage them to sort of, you know, maybe do better? Or Yeah, absolutely. I think if I had one main tip, it would be about videos and photos. So tweeting rich content and um, making that, that content have value. If you tweet native photos and video content, on average, that bumps up engagement by about 70%. So doing something simple like that, as opposed to just text or text with a link, links drive me crazy. Nobody <laughs> clicks on links. Really? Nobody clicks on links. So you don't simple think it's... behavior. Really? Yeah. So it, don't don't freak out about making sure you put in links and stuff. Exactly. Okay. Like just do the, the native photos, put, put that photo and that video directly within the tweet. Understanding the different platforms and how to use them and what their strengths are, I think is really important. So developing a strategy, not just for digital or social media as a whole, but developing a strategy for Twitter, a strategy for Facebook, a strategy for Instagram, because they are very different platforms and people need to know how to use them. Um, 
but yes, definitely photos and videos. So that rich, high quality content. Also think about the times of day that you're tweeting are the best times of day for Twitter are, um, again, simple user behaviors, kind of seven to nine in the morning, everyone's commuting, they're on their phones, again, lunchtime, like 12 to 2.30 in the afternoon, and then the evenings, like 5.30 to 10.30, you'll just get more eyeballs on those tweets. And Twitter is a a very different platform in the sense of it is a live, real-time platform. So it's also okay to tweet in that first time time zone, you know, 7 to 9 a.m., but then also, again, later in the day. It's okay to be doing that two or three times a day. So I think those would be my main tips. What about people um, repeating tweets or, you know, just repackaging something they've already put out? Do you, do you think that's okay? Yeah, or I do. do you... I do think that's okay. I think, again, be smart about it. So what's the what's the point and what's your voice? So finding a voice on Twitter is important as well. That doesn't mean that you have to push yourself to do things you're not comfortable with, but you do want to have a voice beyond just um, kind of a, a promotional tool because Twitter is, again, a conversational platform and an authentic platform. So where we see people not have as much success is when they just say, you know, new album coming out October 12th, and then there's like a a picture of October 12th or something, you know, versus even giving that a little bit of personality and saying, hey, I'm really excited. I've got new lyrics for you or new album coming out October 12th. Like, here's a sneak peek of what the cover might look like or something. There's a big difference between that voice and then just that kind of promotional undertone. Yeah. I, I think I've asked this of some of your colleagues in the past, but what's your recommendation about sort of, if you like, sponsored tweets or things that you might be, you know, really pushing something commercially. Do you do you think you should come out and identify them with with a certain hashtag or some disclaimer or Yeah, personally, well, I'd say two things. One, if it if it doesn't feel as overly promotional, it's okay to leave it as an organic tweet, but I think if it does have that very heavy promotional feeling, then yes, I think giving it a specific sign-off or hashtag is a great idea. Katy Perry is a fantastic example of that. Okay. When her management is tweeting for her, they sign it, KP's team, I think it is, or, or <laughs> KP something, um, versus when she's doing it on her own, it's just a, a regular tweet with no, that, that signature isn't there. So just letting fans and that audience know, oh, okay, this is actually from the management team. It just again breaks down that wall and lets them know that they're talking authentically and um not being kind of i guess fooled yeah yeah and and i would think would you say it's it's probably okay for say katie perry to promote her own music <laughs> but when someone else is a third party's doing it then you should sort of yeah, put exactly. your hand up and identify is that right so yeah. if it's if you're promoting your own product no drama. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But the difference in that example was that and if you look at her Twitter timeline, the difference is when her management team is on there, it's it looks like a very promotional tweet. So it might just have the album cover and say, oh, we released new tour dates today or something like that. So you can tell that voice isn't there. So if they didn't have that signature, her followers would just be a bit confused. Like, well, why is she all of a sudden kind of speaking this way and acting this way? So just that little signature lets them know, oh, okay, that's the management team. Right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I can tell from television, obviously, that it covers a wide range of tastes and demographics. I mean, you look at things that are, are, 
a big on Twitter could be like Q&A, for example, every Monday night it's huge, but also The Bachelor, and they're sort of, to a certain extent, different audiences, right? So it covers a wide gamut. Do, do, is it similar on music or is it a bit more focused on certain demos of people yeah, who enjoy definitely music? definitely similar in music. It's just across the board. I think one of the things I was surprised about when I first started working at Twitter was I started looking through which music artists in Australia were driving, you know, the most engagement and the most impressions and those sort of things. And some of them you knew would be on there like five seconds of summer. But then when you got kind of a little bit further down the list, there were people on there that I had never, ever heard of from genres I would have never thought would have made it that high up on the charts. So things like really heavy, hard metal music, and then also DJs or hip-hop artists that are Australian DJs or hip-hop artists that I had literally never heard of that were driving just massive engagement and had, you know, 300,000 followers, 400,000 followers. So it really is across the, the board. Yeah. So there's no such thing as you're too cool for Twitter then, really? No, nope, <laughs> no, no thing. <laughs> if, you, if you're not there, you're not cool, perhaps. Um, tell me about some of those music artists. Uh, I mean, that you mentioned the top eight of the top ten Australian music artists, and you just alluded to then some of the ones who aren't quite, you know, who are not top of the charts all the time, but but they still sort of curate a, a strong following. Is there, is there plenty of them? There are there any examples yeah, that come to mind to talk about There's loads them? of them. And what's interesting in that space as well is the engagement that they draw. So for us, while follower numbers are important, I think the engagement is way more important because that those are the people that are actually interacting with your tweets and reading retweeting them or replying to them. And, you know, you might have 8 million followers, but if only a million of them are active, then that's not as great as if you have 500,000 followers, but 400,000 of them are highly engaged, right? And we see a lot of that in Australia as well, although we are lucky where those top 10 still are heavily, heavily engaged. But so a good example of that would be someone um, like a Reese Mastin, who has about 260,000 followers, if I remember correctly, um, but drives huge engagement on the platform. We've done a few campaigns with him, which have been massively successful, um, actually mind-blowingly successful. So he's a great example of an independent artist who's not really getting radio play, but is just huge on the platform. And there's ones that go even further down from that. So there's um, another example would be like a Tom Williams, who used to be the lead singer of kind of like a boy band here. I think he was on, I think it was X Factor he was on a few years ago. Um, He only has about 60,000 followers. He's now, again, an independent artist who's kind of launched a solo career, um, not getting any radio play or anything like that. But on Twitter, he's also hilarious. He's kind of become this influencer because his voice on Twitter, he's one of my favorite people to follow. He's really funny. His music is good as well, but I almost like him even more just for his personality. (laughs) And he's got this huge audience around the world. He was in Singapore getting attacked by fans a couple of months ago. Um, So again, you know, an Aussie who's not really generating that much press coverage or radio play here, but has grown this huge audience on Twitter. Comedians seem to use it quite well too. I mean, we're lucky to enough have done a, a few things with Will Anderson, and, yeah. and he's great. He, he likes engaging with his audience. He uses it very cleverly to promote his programs yeah. um, and, and his tours and stuff like that. Is he is he sort of one of the good examples? You, you yeah, absolutely. Will Hamish and Andy, obviously. Oh, course, yeah. um, even someone like Bo Ryan, who mm. is a sports figure yet also really funny. Um, Adam Liao, who was a 
God, it still is a celebrity chef, but has this really unique voice on Twitter where he's both a comedian and sometimes a political commentator. There's, I mean, I could give you a million examples. There's, there's so many great personalities that are there that kind of grow beyond where they started out in their original kind of category and then have grown beyond that on the platform. You mentioned before the number of followers. I mean, that's still sort of the main metric, it seems, isn't it? But it's not it doesn't tell you everything about the the person does it no it definitely doesn't it can tell you it can give you good audience insights into you know we can break it down of where those followers are based around the world and and look at those demographics but um again i really think that engagement is more important so how many of those followers are actually interacting with your tweets i think that's the most important to give you another example um there's a, a young guy we work with who's a musician, Fletcher Pillen, and he has, I think he's got like 10,000 followers on the okay. platform, but they're incredibly engaged. So he might tweet something, and even though he only has 10,000 followers, he might get you know 1,200 likes in the first hour or something like that. So that's a good example of a small audience, but a really active audience. Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that, because there's a certain media newsletter and magazine that's, <laughs> that's sort of teetering on the brink of passing 30,000. So if maybe you're we telling me... It, maybe we can get it to 31,000 by the end of this podcast. So if, if 10,000 can be a good number, I'm thinking, hey, there's nothing wrong with 32. But, I mean, can you tell me this? Can you still... Um, is it... Is it sensible to have strategies for increasing your your um, your followers, and and do you give advice on stuff like that? Or yeah, I think that essentially the strategy is the same. So whether you're in looking at increasing your followers or your engagement, it's still those same tips. Where it's the high quality content, the authenticity, finding the voice, um, thinking about the best times of day, the interactive. Um, level is important on Twitter as well. So not just tweeting, but interacting with some of your followers' tweets, or maybe they're not even people you follow, but thinking about outside of your immediate circle, tweeting to some of those people. And again, not forcing it, keeping it authentic. But um, to give you an example of that, I love I love this story. Now, this was probably four years ago now, but it's still one of my favorites. Before anyone know who knew who Diplo was, he met Harry Styles backstage and One Direction was kind of already getting pretty big. And afterwards he just tweeted, Hey, great to meet you at Harry Styles. So what happened? You know, all two million of One Direction fans who didn't know who Diplo was before all of a sudden followed Diplo and he grew, you know, two million fans overnight. So thinking about um, being interacting with people outside of your immediate circle as well. So for example, again, let's say you're a music artist, but you love The Bachelor and you're at home and you're watching The Bachelor, well, send out a tweet about The Bachelor. And I think sometimes people can overthink, oh, I'm I I'm in this category. I have to stay in that category. But that's not the case on Twitter. I think some people are scared sometimes by the negativity that might come. It might be only a couple of people. Is it is it important to keep it in perspective of how many people react to a tweet? If you only get a few negatives, you shouldn't maybe get too worried? Or Yeah, absolutely. And I think, again, remembering Twitter, again, is a global, live, public, conversational platform. So there are going to be a lot more eyeballs on that tweet than there would be on some of those competing platforms because we also have about 500 million logged out users globally. So those are people that consume the tweets without an actual Twitter account. And that's a key difference with our platform as well. So already understanding that you are approaching a bigger audience than 
most platforms in the world. And on top of that, um, you know, it's a bit like real life. Not everybody is going to love you. But I think finding that authentic way to deal with that and what you're comfortable with, a great example of that, I think, here is Guy Sebastian. And if you look at Guy Sebastian's Twitter account, the way he deals with it is gold. He's hilarious. So, you know, he came out with a song. I remember this really clearly. And somebody tweeted, I think this song really sucks or, you know, I hate this song or something. And, and he tweeted back, well, have you ever tried to make music? Like, why don't you go today and try to sit down and write a song and sing and let me know how it goes? You know, and it wasn't snarky, but it was just a smart reply. And he doesn't reply to everyone, but I've seen him do it quite a lot where somebody might say something, you know, not so nice to him. And then he just tweets back and kind of puts them in their place and it just closes it straight away. Yeah. Um, again, maybe not right for everyone, but if you can find those authentic ways to deal with it, I've seen other people do that as well, but he's a great example. Jenny, I've heard different people in the media debating about how to deal with people that might um, that, that might regularly come on and, and try and be a little annoying. Some people say, look, you should just ignore it, move on. Some people like to block people. What, what do you say then? Is it a personal thing or what do you think is there a best way to react? Yeah, I mean, definitely use us for support. Like Twitter takes safety issues very, very seriously. And we're constantly, literally every day updating just safety and abuse policies on the platform. Uh, you probably saw a lot of the press that came out last week, um, just in regards to what we're doing glo globally and how seriously we're, we're taking the issue. And we, we always have, and it's one reason that I am proud to work at the company. So use us as a support, whether that's um, um, as intense as, you know, emailing us and telling us about it, you can also just file, uh, anyone can on Twitter, you can file a, a, a support kind of ticket or an abuse ticket and that we can escalate that for you. So definitely use the tools on the platform when it is serious enough to do so. You can certainly block people if that's something that you want to do. You can also turn off notifications, which sometimes even something as simple as that helps people. For a single user, can you turn off a notification? Yes, okay. you can. Um, so yeah, so there's lots of different ways to, to address it. And I think each individual knows, you know, what they're what they're comfortable with and how much of it they can, they can sure. take. Yeah, yeah, I guess people have different tolerance levels, yeah, don't they? exactly. But, but you're not going to turn around and go toughen up, princess, or yeah. something. You, you, <laughs> no, you take it all seriously. It is a serious issue, yeah, and that's yeah. why we're constantly updating the platform for that as well. Sure. Another question about music. Um, record labels get involved too, I guess, um, and retailers as well, the, the whole gamut. Do, how far do you go across the sort of music spectrum? Do you get involved in that as well? Yeah, or? we do. We work with record labels. We work with um, touring companies. So say like a Frontier Touring, uh, Chug Entertainment, companies like that as well. Um, again, artists are actually our management. So yeah, we really do go across the board. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Um, movies. Mm -hmm. do, you, do you work with movie companies? And yep. uh, I mean, the Australian film industry is relatively small c compared to the, the amount of... Um, you know, the, the, they're sort of swamped, I guess, by the, the international box office. But um, do you work both with sort of production production houses like the makers of the movies and the distributors? Yep, we do. I think probably most of our work um, as far as film companies in Australia is more with the distributors. So say like a Universal Music Australia, Sony okay. Pictures Roadshow, Um 
we don't go as granular as like when the film's actually in production here. It's more about when it's being distributed. Yeah, or the big events. So there might be some key uh, red carpet premieres in Australia each year. So we'll partner around those kind of things. Okay, and they're sort of. I guess there's some movie stars who are all over Twitter, some who probably aren't there at all. Yeah. Do you sort of know when one of them's in the country or something promoting yep. a movie and, and you make sure they, you know, that, that they're getting the best they could get here? And... Absolutely, absolutely. So we're sitting in the Blue Room yeah. right now, which was invented in Australia, by the way. Um, so, yes, we've had many film stars through here to do things like Twitter Q&As or meet and greets, um, just kind of video snippets, so lots of different things that we've done here. So we work with all of the film companies when they're on press tours or things like that to figure out, you know, good activations they can do here. Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm very privileged to be sitting in the Blue Room. It's fantastic. <laughs> I've seen it so many times on that on my little Twitter feed. It's, you can say you great. sat where Matt Damon sat. Oh, stop it. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me, so just, yeah, what was the original idea for the Blue Room? What? Yeah, so basically I came to Twitter and, you know, again, my background being in television, I just thought it was really weird that we didn't have like a VIP space or a promotional stop a place I could function as a promo stop for talent when they were in town. So the way it was happening when I came on board, um, to give you an example, was my first week I was trying to arrange a, a Q&A with Taylor Swift. She was coming in town. Her management team said yes, and then they were like, okay, well, where are we going to do it? And I was like, well, I could meet you in the hotel room with a laptop. Or And I was like, this is, uh, you know, I thought to myself, this is all really messy and weird, and it just made no sense to me that globally that's how everybody was doing it. And I was like, well, no wonder it doesn't always happen because they they'd say they were going to do it but then you're sending them off to their hotel room or something and expecting them to remember to log on at 6 p.m or whatever it is and we all know that when it comes to big talent like that you pretty much have to hold their hands when they're going through that yeah and you've got you to know? do it when it suits them right? exactly well you'd never say you're going to do this tv interview turn up at the network at this time and then just sit yourself behind the desk and whatever you know so i was like this is crazy we need to build a, a vip space and so pitched it at the time everyone thought i was not and convince them to let us do it. And the budget was remarkably small. You'd probably die of laughter if you heard what the bu- initial budget was. Um, so we built the first blue room in our old offices. And I remember I was launching it with Imagine Dragons. And it was like such a small room. It was about half the size of this. Okay. And they were coming to like debut it and launch it with us. And I actually took them to the room a back way because it was so tiny. I wanted to like make them feel like it was bigger and I was like oh I'm bringing you through the VIP entrance even though it really was the only way to actually get to the room and um, it went really well and everybody loved the room and so then we moved offices we got a, we got a bigger room um, and now they've been replicated globally so they're in oh, wow. you know, India, Japan, Korea yep. um, the US like uh, France, London they're all over the place so yep. yeah it was great. Well, great initiative make, make sure I get a photo before we uh, get out of here <laughs> to prove we were in the blue room. Look we're sort of nearly out of time. I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about a couple of the other things. You've done interesting gigs in your career, and then we'll finish up. Have also a thought about give us some um, highlights of what's going to be happening on Twitter between now and maybe the end of the year, okay. events or things we should look out for. Yeah, but a couple of things in your CV jumped out at me. Um, Super Bowl in, in particular, just 
Tell me a little bit about that. Yes, well, I am an enormous sports fan. I had worked in sports here and there when I was working in TV, and um, I'm also from New York. The opportunity came up. I was living in Sydney, and I got a phone call to fly back. It was when the Super Bowl was in New York City, to fly back and work on the Super Bowl for a few weeks. So as you can imagine, I was like, that's a no-brainer. And it was really interesting because at that time, I had not yet obviously worked for Twitter, so I hadn't really dabbled in social media, but the campaign that I was working on was hashtag PepCity, so I was hired actually by Pepsi, and what they had done as a key sponsor of the Super Bowl was they had created PepCity, which was literally a city within New York City that was run by Pepsi for about... 10 to 12 days, I think it was. Was it a physical setup? Some, physical so where setup. was it? Where did they have oh, it? God, was it was, was, um, it, was on Manhattan somewhere. In, yeah, it was, yeah, it was okay. in Manhattan. I think if I remember correctly, it was like Lower East Side, maybe okay. somewhere. I yeah, don't yeah. actually remember. <laughs> um, but so what they did was every day they had, you know, from morning through night, they had events there in this, this pep city. Everyone from the world's biggest sports stars, so all the NFL stars that were not in the Super Bowl that year, and obvious, and previous stars as well, um, to, you know, like John Stewart and um, a bunch of musicians, celebrity chefs. I mean, they just had like every celebrity you could think of going through there each day. And they would kind of just throw these parties somewhere, um, invite only some were events where they would be interviewing these people up on stage or concerts, and it was open to the public at various times. So basically, my role was to be producing this high-quality content out of the event for them every day. So I would be with, obviously, a camera crew and some associate producers. We'd be doing interviews and, um, you know, kind of like two-minute highlights packages from the day and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Um, yeah. It was a blast. It was yeah. so much fun. It would be a great experience. Um, the hottest TV show in Australia at the moment, and possibly this year, maybe competing with Ninja Warrior, would have to be The Block. Yes. And you've got a little bit of history with that program too. Tell us about that. I do. I was a, a senior producer on The Block um, for a while. I think out of all of the TV shows, which there's a lot that I have produced in my, say, 20-year career in TV, I think The Block was the one that was the most like a family. I'm still really good friends with the people I worked with on that show. Um, I also was really impressed at how authentic and true that show is. So unlike some other quote-unquote reality shows that I've produced (laughs) in the past, there's a lot of producing that goes into those shows. The Block, those contestants, I mean, they are put through the ringer. They do all of that themselves. There is no help behind the scenes. We're pretty much there. It's more like a documentary series, I would say, than a reality series because you're just producing and directing and filming what's happening. They are truly up for days without any sleep and renovating those houses and um, they pour their hearts and souls into that. I'm really good friends with the contestants still that I worked okay. with on the seasons that I produced it. So it's a it's a really great show. It's a really great crew behind the scenes, and um, I had a really good time on it. I think um, out of the 13 seasons, only four have been in Sydney. Did you work in Sydney? Or I did. You, yeah. I, I worked okay. in Sydney, and I also filmed um, some things for the Melbourne seasons, but around the country. So, for example, in Brisbane and things like that. But um, there was an All-Stars season in Sydney a few years ago where they brought back contestants from previous seasons. Bondi, Bondi. yeah. So I was a senior producer on that season as well. Good work. Um, HGTV. Yes. Now, that's a whole network, really, of um, almost Renault shows, flipping houses, Mm -hmm. stuff like that. Just what did you do there? Yeah, so I produced a show there um, that was about... 
transforming people's homes, but also their lives. Okay. So they're involved in the show was a life coach that would come in and while the reno crews were kind of redoing the houses, the life coach would work with the talent on like fixing what was actually wrong in their personal lives as well. So it was very transformative um, on both like a personal level and a physical level for the contestants. So really great. I think that kind of started this weird period of like home (laughs) renovation shows that I was in. And I definitely, now I think I look at my everywhere I live very differently because I'm like, oh, we should fix that. You know, Uh (laughs) it's like, yeah. All right. Now my last little uh, career stop down memory lane for you, MTV. Oh, yes. Saw that on your CV too. Tell us, what did you do there? Yeah. So I was an executive producer at MTV in New York City. um, So the famous building in Times Square. And that was one of my favorite jobs. And um, what I did there was I was hired. They hadn't done a lot studio-based show since TRL. So I was hired to create a daily live show for the network. So we created a show called The Seven, which was hosted by two wonderful hosts, Kevin and Julie. And the tagline was, it's the seven things that you need to know about today. So it was like an entertainment news show. But we really took great liberties with that tagline. (laughs) And so sometimes one of those seven things would be like in-studio guests, like say an interview with the Kardashians, or it'd be something like having Justin Bieber surprise fans in Times Square. I think my all-time, this probably was in my top three best career moments that I've had so far was we shut down Times Square for a performance by Rihanna. And it was, it was one of those moments in your career where you just go, you pinch yourself and you're just like, I can't believe I just made this happen. You know, um, it was awesome. And I just, I had a great time. So I hired and ran a staff of more than a hundred people again, who are still really close friends of mine and daily live daily shows are grind. I had done them a ton earlier in my career. Um, it's, it's a grind. It's a super high-pressure environment, but I thrive off of that stuff, and I absolutely loved it. Yeah. Well, it's fascinating, and some uh, fascinating experiences you've had there. I'm surprised you didn't bring up the, the crime stuff. A few years of heavy crime. <laughs> what was that? Oh, I didn't go, oh, maybe I didn't go far back. Give me um, a quick go. So I, I had, like, probably four years of um, creating and writing and producing, like, really deep uh, crime documentary series okay. for Discovery Channel, National Geographic. So things like I was inside of like the worst maximum security jails for several months in the US was did a gang series in Oakland and got shot at for a few months <laughs> I mean there's a lot of stuff in there that's why I was like wow you wow. bought up HGTV and not the like gang oh, yeah, series I know. I'm sorry yeah I should have <laughs> were there production companies involved in that yes so yeah so I worked for a company called part two pictures out okay. of New York City for a while um, actually the only project that I've ever really done with my husband, which was probably my number two career high, was we created um, and sold, we created, wrote and and sold and produced um, a series to Discovery Channel, which was about the U.S. Marshals. um, And they do a big operation each year called Operation Falcon, where in the matter of a week, they arrest millions of people all over the U.S. It's crazy. It's actually mind-blowing. And so we created a series about that, and we were like deeply embedded with the U.S. Marshals for a long time, many, many months, and we got to work on that together, which made it even 
better. So, wow. Does yeah. that ever crop up on repeats? That, um, I don't it, know. I would assume probably, so. Could, I probably clips online or something. Yeah. yeah so was it Operation be. Falcon? Is that Operation was? Falcon. Yeah. yeah. Um, wow. There would, okay. uh, I'm sure there would be. I haven't yeah. actually tried to look, but yeah. yeah. You, you mentioned your husband. Is he in the business too? He is. is. He, what, he is. What's he um, he's a news director at Channel 9. I don't, I don't, okay. we don't tell that many people that, <laughs> but now I guess everyone's going to know. <laughs> okay. All righty. Good, good. Um, okay. Now, between now and Christmas, it's a big time of the year for entertainment. Yeah. People have lots of stuff, the market, um, in all forms of media, you know, publishing, uh, movies, TV. What are some of the highlights you think that the Twitter will be over? Yeah, definitely the Arias for sure. I mean, we have just seen it grow massively over the years. For example, last year it trended at number one, not just in Australia, but like the UK, Brazil, it was trending in the US. Like it has gone so much bigger than just an Australian award show. And I think this year will be massive, especially if you think about it's been a big year for Australian music. And I know she's technically New Zealand, but take Lord even, for example, like it's going to be really exciting awards this year. Um, also, there's some great movie releases. Pitch Perfect 3 is coming up. That'll be a big one. Um, you know, Rebel Wilson's huge on Twitter. So that'll be great. Um, and of course, album releases. We always yeah. see a lot of great things happen around the holidays. And Taylor so, Swift's yeah. got a new album to drop Taylor soon. Swift's got um, a new album. She's still massive. It's pink, um, so big huge. on Twitter. She's huge. just had a new one. She's number one as we yeah, speak. Yeah, she's number one. I think also with all of the tour announcements as well. So obviously Pink has been announcing her Australian yeah. dates. Um, yeah, there'll be a lot of great music. That's incredible. Music as well. Best part of 12 months away and Pink's already adding lots of dates and stuff. So I know. I, I read Australians something. really love it, aren't they? I think she holds a record for a number of shows or something. She does, yeah. And I know I was reading something the other day that said her and her husband are very serious about moving to Australia in the next year or so. But um, there used to be a guy who worked at Twitter who was working for, before he came to Twitter, he was working for Twitter in New York. And before he came to Twitter, he was working for Sony Music in New York, but overseeing international. Okay. And he told me that pink was always a huge topic of discussion for them. <laughs> and they would sit around in New York City and talk about why is she so massive in Australia? And right. it was this crazy situation where you can imagine all these executives back in the US just sitting around a table going, what is going on in Australia? But one of my favorite stats here is that more Aussies buy tickets to live music than live sport each year. And really? I think that like that sums it up, yeah. right? People just assume it's a nation of sport lovers, which it is, but really it's a more of a nation of music lovers. I guess those executives thinking if they could crack why pink is so huge there, they might be able to replicate success for other artists exactly. by employing the same sort of uh, strategy. I know we're about, as we record this, we're about four weeks away from the Arias give or take a few days, they like releasing all the names of the artists. They drip feed it between now and when the event's on. Do you find out beforehand sometimes? I or? do. Okay. I'd, I'd get my... Uh, your lips will be sealed. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd get my throat slit <laughs> if I told you anything. But, um, you know, I would say... Look on the Arias Twitter feed. Look at their timeline, and just have have a look at the nominees, and you might be able to guess a few. Yep. Okay. All right, wonderful. All right, Jenny Sager, look, uh, Director of Entertainment here for uh, Twitter in this part of the world. Great uh, spending some time with you, and um, thanks for uh, talking us through all your highlights. No, thank you. It's been fun.